Well, it is a joy for us to have the All-State Chorus with us. You did a wonderful job. Thank you. I uh, especially like the energy of young people. I was trying to watch them when they were singing the last song. and I love the energy that they have. Uh, as I've said before, I, I wish I had that energy. My doctor said, you know, you don't. It'd blow up your body. But I would still like to, hey, what a way to go. You know, just blow up rather than, rather than just sort of fade away. That would be a, a good way to go. So thank you all for coming. We enjoyed having you very much. Probably most of us for the last couple of months have been glued to the television watching the bowl games. And this evening, of course, is the big daddy of them all, the, the Super Bowl. I think it would be a lot of fun to play in a, in a bowl game. I, I suppose that Steve and I are just about to run out of time for our possibility of doing that. We're not nearly as fast as we once were and might not be able to do it. But I think that it would be fun to play in a bowl game. Perhaps some of you have done that. There was one man, Roy Regal, some of you are familiar with him, played in the Rose Bowl in 1929 against Georgia Tech. There was a fumble. He picked up the ball and began to run towards the goal line. He ran for 69 yards, and just as he was about to cross the goal line, a member of his own team tackled him. He was going in the wrong direction. As I think about that, there are several implications. It doesn't fit perfectly, but as I think about that, being tackled by your own team member, it reminds me somewhat of the church. It seems to me that we spend an awful lot of time tackling our own people, members of the team. I wonder, as I think about that, what difference would we make if we worked together? What difference would the church make if we all came together as the church of the living God to represent Him on this earth? Well, I think for one thing, we would have an impact in reaching lost people for Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. Now, when I think of that, I think the Apostle Paul is saying, I did my part, I planted a seed. That was my part, I planted the seed. Apollos came along and he watered the seed. We worked together and what happened? And God gave the increase. I think that we could make a major impact in leading people to Christ if we were to work together. We probably also would have an impact on our society. We all are frustrated sometimes with the lack of influence we have in our culture and in our society. What if we all came together? You know, every Christmas we are fussing about those stores that don't use the word Christmas. They don't want to offend anyone except us, so they don't use the word Christmas. What, what if the people of God were to say, well, you don't recognize Christmas, so I'm not going to buy my Christmas presents at your store. You know, we are told that, that 80 to 85%, somewhere in there, 80 to 85% of Americans at least say they are Christians. Now, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I have no way of knowing how many actually are Christians. That's the Lord's business. But 80 to 85% say that they are Christians. What happens if we say, well, you know, if you don't recognize Christmas, we don't buy Christmas presents from you. 
There are many colleges and universities who are hostile to the things we believe. What if parents were to say, well, I'm not going to send my kid to that school, or students were to say, then I'm not going to go to that school. Do you think there would be any change? You see, if we actually represent 80 to 85% of America, and we were together on some issues, then it would make a difference in our community. We have begun a study in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Today we continue that study as we look at the church united. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul, in these verses, is speaking about the church united, and he begins by saying that we are united in citizenship. In verse number 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally, that is translated, perform your duties as a citizen. Perform your duties as a citizen. Now, Paul here is speaking about the standard of citizenship. He is speaking about our standards. Now, standards are important because they become our goals. Your standard is very important. I'll give you an example. I was talking with Hank last week. Hank is my grandson who is at the Citadel. He's a sophomore there. He makes very good grades. Now, let me just say right up because before you start, well, he's bragging about his grandson again. Yeah, that's right. I am. And uh, I brag about all my kids. But he makes really good grades. He's gotten a gold star every semester. But as I was talking with him, here's the point that I'm trying to make with this. I was talking with him. We were talking about school and his grades and those things. And he said, I'm not going to make a bad grade because I'm a student. All right? Here's the point. The standard is I'm a student, which becomes the goal I'm not going to make a bad grade. The standard determines the goal. The same thing is true with athletics. For instance, if the standard of the team is to win the conference, then that becomes the goal of the team. So Paul is saying that there are standards that are set for the people of God. And standards are important because they become our goal. Now, the world has its standards. They are different from the standards of God, but nevertheless, the world has its standards. For instance, the world's standard is success, that you are to be successful. And, you know, Parade Magazine comes out about once a year, and they list various professions, and they show a picture of someone, and then the salary underneath it, how much they make. And we all, all, I'm sure that we all run over there and look and see where we are to see if, if I'm a success. 
Do I make as much money as that person? Do I, do I, am, I, am I below that person? Because I want to know if I am a success. In sports, the winners are listed. They, they, they are listed. And so we check our team to see if they are on the list so we'll know if they are a success. Churches do the same thing. You know, we publish our attendance and our baptisms and, and our budgets and all those things. And so we look to see if our church is a success. So the world standard then is success. The world's standard also is approval. The world standard requires the approval of the world. My granddaughter Janie wanted a pair of boots, and she was making her case for the boots. She said, I, I want some Ugg boots. I said, Ugg boots? What are Ugg boots? I, I didn't even like the name. I said, what are they? Oh, she just had to have some Ugg boots. Well, Linda and I started looking. I found some Ugg boots. I said, I think I know why they call them Ugg boots, because they are ugly. <laughs> but she had to have those boots, these ugly boots. Why? Because that's what her friends wore. You know, her friends wear these things, so that's what I have to have. So the world then gives us approval if we wear what the world wears. If we go places, the world goes. If we listen to the music, the world listens to. If we do what the world does, then we receive the world's approval. The world's standard is prosperity. Perhaps not as much as Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, but you know you have to have a degree of prosperity. Like all these deacons sitting on this front row, they are all here because they're prosperous. We may not be as prosperous as that. I mean, I'm just teasing about that, guys. I hope they're prosperous because they all tithe. But that is the standard of the world. The world has its standards. Right now, what about God's standard? Because we are to reflect the kingdom of God, not the world. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia. Even though they were in Macedonia... They were to reflect the values of Rome because they were a Roman colony. What Paul is saying to us is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And even though we live here on earth, we are to reflect the standards of God. What are they? Well, one is purity. 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16 says... Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand as a child of God that you are to reflect the kingdom of God, and that includes purity, holiness? God has set you apart to live holy lives, righteous lives. That's the standard of God. That's the standard of His kingdom. It is purity. It is integrity. Job chapter 31 verse 6 says, Let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 7, The righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Amen. A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. 
You want to give something to your kids? Give them a dad of integrity. Give them a parent of integrity. My dad's been gone for a long time. But I'm still grateful for the integrity with which he lived his life and by which I have been blessed. What is the standard of God's kingdom? Purity. We are to live holy lives. Integrity. We are to be people of integrity. And God's standard is love. Jesus said in Matthew 5:44, "But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven." So Paul begins by talking about our standard. We are citizens of heaven, and there are standards for that citizenship. He continues in verse number 27, "Standing firm in one spirit with one mind." Understand, Paul is speaking about unity, not uniformity, and sometimes that becomes a problem for us because we want everyone to be uniform. We, we want everybody to be alike because we are threatened whenever we are not. I saw a cartoon that I liked. It was a picture of a religious leader and a young man who obviously had become a Christian. The young man had an earring, he had spiked hair, he had holes in his jeans, he had all those things that we oftentimes see with young people. And the religious leader said to him, now you know, young man, that being a Christian means that you have to dress like a Christian. And the thing that made it funny is that the religious leader was standing there with a bishop's hat that was two feet tall, had a cross on it, He's wearing a robe, a chain around his neck, and holding a staff, saying to the young man, you need to look like a Christian. Paul is not speaking here about uniformity. We are not all alike. He is speaking about unity. He said that we are to be united in, in spirit, the unity of the spirit, one spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit, the unity of the spirit. Well, we would say, that, well, the church is badly divided today. We're, we're divided doctrinally. There's, there's Calvinism. There's Arminianism. There's a conflict there. There's the spiritual gifts and so forth. Now, ladies and gentlemen, most of the Bible is interpretive. We're not going to interpret it all the same way. We ought to be able to interpret Scripture honestly, but at the same time maintaining the spirit of unity. We get in trouble when we say in interpretive issues, this is the only way that it can be interpreted. Now, I have my interpretations. Mine are probably right, but they are nevertheless interpretations. We are to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We are divided, for instance, over style. There are those, there are those churches that they like liturgical worship services. They are those who like traditional worship services. They are those who like contemporary worship services. And I don't think that is a big issue as long as we maintain the spirit of unity. See, that's what Paul is saying, that we, we are to keep the unity of the spirit. Our methods differ. We don't all do things the same way. But we are to keep the unity of the spirit. So he says, in one spirit and one mind. Unity of spirit, unity of mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wrote, 
Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no division among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now here's what I believe, and you may disagree with this, and that's all right, because you have the right to interpret as well. I think there are many issues in the Bible in which we can interpret them, and we may interpret them differently. But in those essentials where the Bible is dogmatic, we are to be of the same mind. The Bible is the Word of God, infallible, without error. And when the Scripture says there's one way of salvation, there's one way of salvation. When the Scripture says there's a heaven and there's a hell, there is a heaven and there is a hell. When the Bible says something, we are to be of one mind concerning those issues that are dogmatic. So there is room, I believe, for us to interpret some of these issues differently as long as we keep one spirit, the unity of spirit. But when the Bible speaks dogmatically, we're to be of one mind. It's the Word of God. Paul continues in verse 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word striving is the same word from which we get our word athletics. And it speaks of teamwork. A little boy was asked what position he played on the baseball team. He said, I play left out. Well, none of us is left out. We are all, all to participate. We, if we are a child of God, we all are to participate. We're on the team. We are striving together on the same team. Now, where do we strive together in prayer? Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. We recently, last week, I think it was, had a, a prayer conference in our church, and many of you came, and the emphasis was on prayer. And the point was made repeatedly, what would happen if we prayed? What would happen if we really prayed? We sought the Lord. We were striving together in prayer. Rather than complain so much and fuss so much, we prayed. Striving together in prayer. He said, striving together against sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. How different would our community be? How different would our country be if we as the people of God were striving together against sin, in opposition to sin? And then he goes on, for the faith. We have been given the gospel to share with others that they might hear the good news. Jesus' last word to his followers was the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So we have a common citizenship. That's what he's saying here. As the children of God, we have a common citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. And then he said we have a shared challenge in verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you and that too from God. The word alarm that is used there is a word that was used to refer to a horse that flinched. I, I grew up with horses. I don't know if you are from, if you grew up with them or around them very much. But you know, sometimes a, 
horse got spooked or he flinched. And so that's the same word that is used here. And oftentimes we flinch in the face of opposition. That, that was true of, of the Hebrews. They flinched in the face of opposition and became discouraged as a result of it. When they came to the edge of the promised land, rather than go in, Moses sent in 12 spies. He said, go in, check out the land, see what it is. They came back, all of them in agreement. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's all that God said that it was. But we can't go in. Ten of them said, we can't go in. They're giants over there. The people over there are giants. They're enormous. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't go in. They became discouraged. Numbers 14.1 Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Now, here's what happened. They came to the edge of the promised land. They flinched, and then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They came to the edge, and they flinched. Moses, Moses was discouraged over the constant complaints of the Hebrews. And so on one occasion, he's praying and asking the Lord. He said, God, I don't, you know, if this is it, just take me home now. I don't want to stay and do this. He came to that point where he was ready to die. Elijah, he was discouraged when Jezebel threatened his life. Elijah, you see him running down through there. I mean, he's called down fire from heaven. Now then she says, I'm going to kill you. And he starts running for his life and he's complaining he said, God, I'm the only one serving you. There's nobody else serving you. I'm being faithful to you. No one else is being faithful to you. I'm the one you can count on. Nobody else. You can't count on anybody else. So there he is under the juniper tree. He flinched in the face of opposition, and he too wanted to die. Sometimes we flinch in the face of opposition. Sometimes we flinch in the face of, of threats. The disciples were threatened. They were told not to, not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. You can't speak in Jesus' name. They did not flinch, however. I'm afraid today that largely the church is flinching when it's threatened. And as a result of it, we have lost so much of our power and our voice. Whenever we are told that you're going to lose your, your tax exemption, this is going to happen to you. That You can't speak about this. You can't speak about that. And I'm afraid in many instances we have flinched and so we have lost so much of our influence. There's a challenge of opposition. There's the challenge of conflicts in verse number 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake. So experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me now here to be in me. Their conflicts. It's interesting to me because the prosperity gospel says that if you're serving the Lord, if you're faithful to the Lord, then there's nothing but prosperity. I mean, there, it, it, it is everything is everything is downhill and shady. If you're following the Lord, that's not what Paul says. Truth is, we're saved through conflict. There was a conflict of the cross. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. While he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying to the Father. He said, Father, if there's some way for people to be saved other than my death, other than my suffering, then, Father, let them be saved that way. So there was a conflict, that struggle that he went through. But he took our sins upon himself. He went to the cross and purchased our salvation. And the Bible says that if I put my faith in him, that he forgives me and saves me. Being saved does not exempt us from suffering. Paul said, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now 
here to be in me. Look at his past. Paul was in prison in Philippi. Where was he when he was writing the letter to the Philippians? He was in a Roman prison. And yet he saw himself as being victorious. His suffering wasn't a defeat. He saw himself as victorious. In 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Even though he suffered, even though he had conflict, he said, it is when I'm weak that I am strong because it is then that God bears me up. He saw himself as victorious. Salvation, ladies and gentlemen, does not exempt us from suffering. In fact, the Bible tells us that suffering is acceptable. Now, that's not a part of our story as American Christians. You know, our story is that you're to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you become a child of God, then everything is going your way. The rest of the world does not understand it that way, nor does the Bible teach it that way. The Bible teaches us that suffering is acceptable. Matthew 5.10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. I was watching an interview the other night with Franklin Graham. And because so many Christians in other parts of the world are suffering, being martyred for the faith and so forth, the interviewer asked him, shouldn't those Christians pretend that they have converted to Islam to spare their lives? Not really mean it, just pretend to. And Franklin Graham said, no. That would be a disgrace to those who have been martyred for the faith. That's tough, isn't it? That's generally not our understanding, but that is Scripture. We're not exempt. Suffering is acceptable because suffering is the prelude to glory. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I don't know how I would do with suffering. Because thus far I have not been called on to suffer. I do believe that we're getting very close to the point where Christians even in America are going to be called on. So it's probably a part of your thinking process as well. If I am, how will I do? Will I really stand for Jesus if it gets tough? My assumption is, my hope is, that if I'm called on to suffer for Christ, that he will give me the grace to do so at the time. I confess I do not have it now, but I don't need it now. My belief is that when we are called on, that he is sufficient and will give us the grace. What is the conclusion? What is the outcome? Verse 28 in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but a salvation for you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the fact is, those who are opponents to God are on the pathway of destruction. Jesus said that. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Broad is the way that leads to death, to destruction. And many there be which go there. Narrow is the way which leads to life. And few there be that go there. The fact is, according to Scripture, and I do believe it, that those who do not receive Jesus Christ, those who reject Jesus Christ, on the path to destruction, that's what the Bible declares. But it says there is salvation for those who put their faith in Him. Those who trust Jesus, those who know Jesus, are forgiven and saved. So, which path are you on? Verse number 28 tells us where it's going. Destruction for those who oppose God. Salvation for those who accept Christ. Which path are you on? Oh, it's my prayer that if you're not on the path to righteousness, that today you would commit your life to Jesus Christ by faith because He has provided for your salvation. He has paid for your sins. That if you put your faith in Him, He forgives. You're born into the family of God and heaven is your home. Our Father in God, I thank You for Your Word, for the promise, for the truthfulness of it. And Lord, I just pray today for those who are on the, the way of destruction that today they would turn to Jesus, that they might be forgiven and become children of God. Bless this invitation, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand, the choir's going to sing, we extend an invitation. My friend, if you're here without Jesus Christ today, I encourage you to trust Him. If you're looking for a church home, my doors are open to you. Stand with me, please, as we stand, they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.